Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. This week, we discuss how cognitive biases impair our investment decisions and can cause us to make costly mistakes. I want to understand what these different biases are and how we might go about mitigating their impact. And then later in the show, we ask the dumb question of the week. When should you cut your losses on an investment that keeps falling? Okay, this week we're talking about cognitive biases as they relate to investment. Now, we clearly evolved with dumb monkey brains, which were good for hunting and gathering and avoiding getting eaten by lions, but maybe not so good for investing in a globalized financial system. When you're just starting out with investing, one of the main biases to overcome is loss aversion. Should we start with that, Roman? Yeah, I think that's a very good one because the conversations I have one-to-one with people are almost always about this. It's usually people who've sold a business or perhaps they've inherited some money and they're just very cautious about putting money into the market because they're absolutely terrified of making a loss. So I think the first thing I always show them is long-term returns because I think that's the most reassuring thing. If you are investing over a long horizon, the risk is actually taking too little risk because if you buy bonds, you'll underperform on average by about 4.5% every year. So that base rate, you know, the most likely outcome is the most important remedy when you're thinking about taking risk. But no one wants to start investing and then immediately be down 30, 40, 50%, do they? It's kind of a human (laughs) thing that's like, I want to get off to a good start at least. But you can guarantee that if you put a large sum of money into equity on day one, day two, you're going to get a loss because you'll be checking it every five minutes, exactly what you're not supposed to do. And you'll be really upset by that. It always happens because markets are just a coin flip over one day, one month. Even one year. Yeah, even over one year, it's still a fairly high probability of a loss. But then if you expand the horizon, that's when the beautiful magic of this drift really starts to dominate over volatility. Short term, you see vol, volatility. Long term, you see drift. And drift is your friend. It's kind of unusual, though, isn't it? Because for most things in life, it's much easier to predict what will happen tomorrow or within a year than it is in 10 to 50 years, right? It's the further you go out, the harder it is to predict. But in investing, it's the other way around. Yeah, because we're used to things which are kind of autocorrelated and which affect us on a daily basis, like weather, very strongly autocorrelated. If it's sunny today, it'll very likely be sunny tomorrow. If it's raining, today, it'll likely be raining tomorrow. But with equity markets, if you know what the return was on the S&P today, it tells you almost nothing about what the S&P will do tomorrow. It's not strongly autocorrelated. So certainly over these short time periods, it is fairly close to random. And I think that's what surprises people, because we always feel as if we should understand what happens when markets go down. You just read the FT. You know, it's so funny because they have this kind of daily commentary on stock markets and they say stocks went up because of this. Yeah. Stocks went down because of this. And then the the market reverses before the business closed and the story completely changes. Yeah, yeah. It's out of date within about three hours. Yeah. So they completely change the narrative to fit the market movement. That's the thing. Sometimes the market's gone up, say, 2% or down 2%. And someone says to me, why did that happen? And I just think, well, that's what markets do. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, if we, if we toss a coin, you don't say, well, why did it come up heads? Because, you know, randomness is very difficult for us to stomach. I mean, I used to work in physics and there's this famous quote from Einstein, which is that God doesn't play dice with the universe. Because when he found out that at the fundamental level, nature is probabilistic, he just couldn't accept it. I think many people just can't live with that randomness. And the same is true of markets. Yeah, our monkey brains are not good at either quantum mechanics or investing in equities. (laughs) And I think that's why I'm drawn to this idea called Bayesian statistics, because it creates this kind of framework for thinking in a kind of probabilistic way. And I just think that's a very good way of approaching reasoning. It's difficult to do because, you know, we're just not wired that way, like you say. But I think it's a good way to kind of overcome these biases, one way to do it at least. So the point with loss aversion is there's a kind of asymmetry, right, in how we experience loss and gain. An equivalent loss hurts far more than an equivalent gain gives us pleasure. Yeah, and this is why people are very averse to putting a large sum of money into markets. So, I mean, often what people do is they drip feed. So if they have got a very large sum, we say, well, the right thing to do is to put it in immediately. Yeah, that outperforms, you told me, two thirds of the time. Yeah, there's a study by Vanguard which shows that if you compare drip feeding over a 12-month period with putting everything in today then two-thirds of the time, because of the drift that we talked about for equity markets, it's better to put the money in straight away. But then, you know, this kind of drip-feeding thing stops that fear of putting money into markets, which is so important. And then people do the right thing eventually. At least we know that at the end of the period, they will be fully invested. It's a nice little trick, isn't it, to overcome that loss aversion bias? Yeah, it's like training to be a Marine. I've got a cousin who trained to be a Marine in the United States. And the first thing they do is they drill you to follow orders without question. Because if you have to run into enemy gunfire, then the, the only way to make people do that is discipline. And markets are the same. You know, you've got to train yourself to run into gunfire and face those losses. Because if you don't, you just have mediocre returns. I love that your cousin is a Marine. Like, talk about randomness, even in the space of one family. You couldn't be more opposite, right? Well, I've got cousins in the States, you see. So they uh, live in Washington. And I suppose related to loss aversion, there's another bias, which is often talked about, which is the endowment effect, which is where instinctively we tend to place a higher value on what we already own than the value we would place on that exact same thing if we didn't own it. Yeah, so people often ask, you know, I've got this portfolio and they show me this huge list of stocks, right? Because what's happened is they've read a share magazine or somebody said to them, have you heard of this stock? And it's great. And then they end up just accreting this huge list of stocks, which probably they'd never buy if they had to come to it, you know, fresh. So why don't they sell it? Well, because they feel as if, you know, it's somehow a good stock because of the fact they've bought it. Yeah, it's kind of a sunk cost fallacy in there, isn't there? Yeah, I think sometimes if it's fallen, then you could think, well, I'll stick with it. I'm happy with it. Maybe it's going to turn around. I I wasn't wrong. The market was wrong. Yeah. And... (laughs) You you often hear that from active fund managers, which is that the market's got it wrong, which is never true, right? It's always them that's got it wrong, but they have to make an excuse as well. And in fact, many of them are very much prone to many of these biases themselves. I mean, I think that's the thing, isn't it? Everyone is prone to bias and thinking you're immune to it is probably the biggest bias of all. Yeah. And if you read uh, Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, that's one of the things he says, this affects you. You know, don't think this is a criticism of other people. So as you read the book, you think, oh, yeah, I know someone who's just like that. But you never think, oh, I'm just like that. 
Whereas <laughs> that's the truth. Yeah. I think one thing is you have to be really careful about the statistical rigor that goes behind some of these studies. They're just trotted out as truths, right? Because, you know, that makes for better reading of a book. But in fact, a statistician went through all of the chapters of Kahneman's book and actually looked at how statistically robust each of those studies was. And of course, they have to be reproducible. Other people have to go out and reproduce the results. And some of the chapters did really well. So things like anchoring, which we'll talk about, was found to be very strong. So very statistically strong. But then some of the chapters, for example, the one on social priming, ended up with really low scores. So the implication being that don't take these biases as hard science necessarily. Well, some of the chapters are actually pretty hard science, but it's actually a continuum. You know, how reproducible are the studies? The anchoring effect, for example, is a very, very strong one. So what's the anchoring effect? So anchoring is the idea that you always focus on one particular number. So let's say you buy a stock for $30. That's the price at which you're going to focus on the stock. You think that that's what it's worth because that's what you paid for it. But then if the price goes below $30, you start to get very worried. If it goes above 30, you're feeling very happy. And for some reason, you always focus on that one number. And marketers use this all the time. So for example, you know, my father used to sell cars. And if you have two cars side by side, one's really expensive and the other one's not so expensive. Well, you'll anchor on the higher price and you'll pay more for it as a result. So, you know, marketing people are very well aware of this. Anchoring bias, I, I know it from commercial negotiations, which I do a lot of. The first number you say, often everything after that gets anchored around that first number. That's right, yeah. You want to be the one to name a number, I always think. And I think that's also why... If you look at research or so-called research in stocks, people produce a target price for a stock. That's what the analysts usually do. So somehow that creates this kind of anchoring effect for people. Whereas if you come up with your own price for the stock, if you do your own discounted cash flow model or some kind of fundamental analysis, then I think it's much better because it tells you what it's truly worth. And that's one of the reasons why I don't like assets, where you can't come up with some kind of fundamental worth. You know, with the S&P, we know roughly what the earnings are going to be next year. Not, not exactly, but roughly. We know what the average price to earnings multiple is for the S&P. So, you know, we know the fair value. We can see if it's expensive or cheap. For gold, who knows? You know, it's just this shiny metal which produces nothing in terms of cash flows, just what people are willing to pay for it. Same for crypto. I think we also anchor to a return number when we look at our portfolio. So maybe we expect, I don't know, 8% a year on average. And then if it's 5% a year, we think, oh no, I've got to start taking more and more risk to catch up with where I was. Yeah, and then you have this kind of recency bias where if we just come out of the period of very strong returns, as we have for the last decade, people expect that's exactly what you're going to get in future. So Schroders does this annual report which shows what people expect will be the returns of equities over the next five years. They actually break it down by country, by the age of the people. So, for example, people in the US expect, on average, 10.3% returns every year for the next five years. People in Argentina expect 15.8%. So the actual returns clearly recently have been much lower than that. So I think people are kind of shocked by that. But whatever returns have been recently is what people extrapolate into the future. So that recency bias, I think that affects professional forecasters as well. Because I always see whatever last year's returns are, they kind of just extrapolate that one year forward. And then we end up at some crazy number for the S&P. They have this beautiful thing called a hairy chart, which shows you what the rate <laughs> expectations are from the Fed. And it's always kind of mean reverting. So the reason why it's a hairy chart is it shows you for each year what the expectation was and then how it evolved over time. It always goes back to the long-term average. 
Of course it does, because that's a reasonable thing for the forecasters to do. Or if you look at broker forecasts for the S&P 500, again, you know, after a very strong period of returns or very strong earnings growth, they just extrapolate that into the future. What are they getting paid for then? (laughs) I can do that. (laughs) Good question. But it's career risk. You know, I mean, they don't want to take a punt which is out of line with what's going on in markets. I think that's probably what causes it. So that's a kind of bandwagon effect then where all of the professionals kind of for career risk reasons group around the similar kind of numbers. Yeah, it's good to fail conventionally rather than to succeed unconventionally. Perhaps that's why people aren't willing to take that risk. And I think that bandwagon effect is a big one in investing. It's presumably one of the reasons we get bubbles every so often is that everyone piles into what's popular. Yeah, I think people see what's going on in other people's portfolios and they tend to copy them. You know, they don't want to think for themselves because, you know, it's often best to just follow the herd, particularly during a rally. I mean, there's a whole strategy called momentum investing, isn't there? Which is basically harnessing that bandwagon effect to your advantage, hopefully. Yeah, these rallies last much longer than they should based on fundamentals. And that understanding is what drives people to buy that bias, which is what momentum is, really. And it's very successful. You know, you see it in every asset type, both in fixed income, equities, commodities. So momentum does better than it should. Unfortunately, it has big reversals because (laughs) the reversals (laughs) usually happen when there's some kind of regime shift in markets. So for example, Kathy Woods, you know, she was the queen of investing. She was the next Warren Buffett until February 2021, when suddenly everything went into reverse. So all the people that have been copying her portfolio suffered just as she did. So it's probably worthwhile kind of mentioning how to overcome that one. Just be aware of valuations, because you know, if you can see that a portfolio is dominated by a price to sales ratio of, you know, like 1000, or there's no profit at all, and people are piling into the stock, okay, you know, some stocks are growth stocks, and people would buy them even if it's loss making. But just be aware that that's not going to be a sustainable situation. So, you know, if you do see that, and people start saying things like, valuation doesn't matter, or that's the old regime, this is the new regime, the world is different now. It's a vibe shift. It's a vibe shift. I like that. Yeah. (laughs) That's what everyone says these days. (laughs) If there's a vibe shift, you know that, you know, it's not a vibe shift. Things are going to mean revert. They always have in the past, they will in future. You've seen it all before, Roman, haven't you? Well, I'm very old, Michael, as you know, old and jaded. But but being old has some benefits, which is you've been around the block, you've heard the same stories in the past. You know, in 2000, people were saying, he doesn't get it. You know, that's what they say. She doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. Yeah. Because, you know, <laughs> oh, look, this stock's burning 10 million every week. <laughs> I think both on the upside when we get into a bubble and when there's despair and we're in a huge crash, There's this tendency, isn't there, to say, this time it's different. And it never really is different. Those are the most expensive words in investing. This time it's different. And that's why using numerical things such as valuation, mean reversion are incredibly valuable because they do give you these kind of anchors for reality. Whereas if you just swept along by emotion, by other people's views, the bandwagon effect, then you know you can just be tossed like a leaf in the wind. Whereas at least if you have that bias understanding, 
you can try and overcome it. I think a lot of these very speculative portfolios are like a collection of lottery tickets. And you're really just hoping that a few pay off massively and justify all the losers in there. But there is an effect, I think, where as humans, we're so bad with probabilities that we massively overpay for these kind of lottery tickets, both real lottery tickets and speculative investments. I think the biggie for me is base rate fallacy, where you ignore the base rate and you just focus on kind of eye-catching information about a particular stock or a particular market. Base rates are really important because what you should do is, okay, well, if I didn't know anything, right, so no conditionals at all. Historically, what has this asset returned? Is it 2%? Is it 6%? Is it 9%? And that should be your base case. And then you can start putting conditionals in. You could say, well, but it's expensive, so maybe the 10-year returns will be lower than they were in the past. Or, you know, there's a commodity shock, so perhaps, you know, the returns are not going to be great over the short term. So that's the way really good forecasters work, is they always focus on the base rate. That's the first question they ask. If I didn't know anything else, what would happen? And sometimes I think we just don't know anything else. There's a Dunning-Kruger effect, isn't there, where people with low ability or knowledge just overestimate their ability and think they know far more than they do. It's why everyone thinks they can pick stocks. <laughs> and it's very hard to convince people they can't. I have very difficult conversations sometimes where I'm trying to be polite. And I see these people who've done lots of stock picking and you have to kind of explain that professional investors can't do this very successfully. So we look at the Spiva survey and then, you know, maybe we say, you know, these people have entire research departments. They have a Bloomberg terminal. They have access to investment bank research. They can speak to the management of the companies directly on the phone. And yet they still underperform the broad market. So you're much less likely to be able to succeed than they are. And then, you know, they kind of come around to the idea. But I think for many people, they maybe had a success in the past they bought one stock, a small cap maybe, and it rallied hugely, or they bought crypto and it kind of increased in value tenfold. And they suddenly think that this means they have an incredible ability to forecast these things. Yeah, in a way, the most useful thing an investor can do is have a terrible return on their initial stock picks. So then they know, <laughs> okay, let's go for the index. And that's another reason why I think the fund portfolio is a good way to learn your foibles. It's kind of like a safe play area where you can make mistakes and not risk too much capital, and then apply that to the long-term portfolio. And not doing anything, remember, is probably the best way of overcoming biases of all, which is to just put money in, leave it, and never touch it. It's hard to go wrong with that, isn't it? We'd always try and tweak the little investments here and there, but it's unlikely to add to your returns. It's interesting, if you look at the holding period for stocks and how it's varied decade by decade, it's been gradually going down. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So in the 1950s, it was quite quite long. But of course, it's become easier to do it. You know, nowadays, you can just whip out your app while you're drunk after being to a party, munching on your kebab on the high street, and you can buy Tesla three times levered. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I, think, I think that's a danger. Gamification of investing is what they call it. Yeah. 40 years ago, it was almost like sitting down with your, you know, your bank manager. When you had to actually trade a stock, you'd speak to the broker. And okay, he was trying to shaft you, it was mostly men in those days. He'd be trying to get you to trade more because that generates more in trading revenue. But just be aware that inaction is a virtue when it comes to investing because that will probably protect you from almost all of these biases as long as you, you keep it diversified. Yeah, there's very few people who can beat the market trading stocks unless you're Warren Buffett or Peter Lynch or Nancy Pelosi. Just stay away from picking <laughs> stocks. <laughs> 
I think when you're starting out in investing, it's really important to be mindful of what's called survivorship bias, which is that the stories you hear from people are the massive successes they've had. That stock that did 10 times returns or that fund they picked that's gone up hugely over a decade. Whereas we don't tend to hear the stories of everyone whose portfolio is slowly withered away 5% a year. My favourite story about this is not to do with investment, right? So it's to do with dolphins. So you often hear these stories of people who were kind of lost at sea and then this pod of dolphins appears and they're all playful and they bring them to shore. You know, they kind of push them into the shore and they survive. But you never hear the stories about the evil dolphins that actually just play with you and just push you out to sea and just have a laugh, you know. (laughs) Drown you on the coral reef. So that's why the stories we always hear are about the kind of good dolphins. We never hear about the evil dolphins. So you're right. I think people don't tell you about their massive losses in crypto. They don't tell you about their massive losses with single stocks because, you know, it's painful to tell people. Will they tell you about their 10 bagger, you know, that increased in value tenfold? Of course they will. It's kind of why I actually like Wall Street bets in a way, because a lot of that is around people posting so-called loss porn. And it's quite nice to just see the examples of people who've thrown away hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, it's kind of like admitting the terrible foibles of their own portfolio, which is, from a human perspective, really, really quite sad to read because many of them have actually been kind of swept along with this kind of bandwagon effect and, and paid the price. Yeah. So I think it's good to have that kind of cure to to the kind of misinformation that you get from many different channels, you know, like TikTok, YouTube. But I think, I think the other thing that's really interesting is to look at fund survivorship bias, because what usually happens is, let's say you buy an active fund, right? The manager, if they're very successful, may move on to another fund or may, maybe move, moves on to become a hedge fund manager if they're very good. And what might happen is that the fund will start underperforming. When that happens, what usually happens is the fund gets shut down or merged with another fund. And if you actually look at the statistics from Spiva, they correct for that. And that's why you suddenly start to see the awful performance of these active funds. Yeah, when you actually just go on a broker and look for terrible funds, it's not that easy to find because like you say, they get shut down. You think, oh, all the funds are doing really well. (laughs) (laughs) So there is a survivorship bias of funds as well. And that, that has to be taken into account when you do the stats for it. And if you do, you just see the awful returns that you get, you know, like 95% of sterling denominated global equity funds underperform the benchmark over a decade. That's staggering, I think. How do they get away with it? Is it just because of these biases? We think, oh, we must be able to be better than average and beat the market. I mean, you worked in the industry. Do people inside it believe that active funds are doing well? Is there this cult? Well, one one way they look at it is to say, look, I'm in this fancy office. I get paid really well. I'm doing my best. And OK, sometimes I won't outperform. You know, there are lots of justifications for it, I think. I think the actual Spiva reports never discussed in active management circles or it's dismissed because, you know, if people could carry on making that kind of money and not succeeding, I mean, who's going to upset the apple cart? There's career risk involved is what you're saying. (laughs) But also, I don't think there's much awareness of it. I mean, it's just assumed that sometimes you can be unlucky. I think the actual stats prove that you're unlucky most of the time. But I think the fee structures are what's effectively broken with it. There is alpha sometimes, but it's just very small. And I think people should acknowledge that in the fee structure and take the pain. You know, when they underperform, their fee should be zero or even negative. You know, they should should pay you back like Orbis does. 
One thing I've often wondered, Roman, is we talk so much about investments reverting to their mean, to the long-term average. So if stocks are going up 20% the last couple of years, then they're going to come down again. Or if they've you know, had a period of underperformance, they'll probably come back up and revert to their mean. But there is a concept of the gambler's fallacy where the previous series of events doesn't necessarily determine the next one. So if you're doing coin flips and you get tails, 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 it doesn't mean the next one's going to be a heads. Yeah, so this is kind of a distinction between short-term effects and long-term effects. So the key thing is to understand which variables are mean reverting. Valuation is mean reverting. That means that it goes back to its long-term trend, always. Because you can't have people paying more and more for the same amount of profit forever. That would just be really odd. And it's just not something which has ever happened in the past. So these mean reverting variables are very useful for kind of seeing what is going to come back and what's not. Another thing is interest rates. Interest rates don't drift. You know, interest rates will not drift up to a million or down to, you know, minus infinity. I mean, that's a broad range. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas equity markets, you know, can drift up to infinity because if earnings continue to grow, then you get this geometric growth in prices, but the valuations don't. And that's the distinction between mean reverting and not. Another one is currency. So currency doesn't drift. If we look at the value of sterling versus the dollar, it won't continue increasing at 10% for the next 100 years. It just doesn't. It just mean reverts. It would mean the end of the UK. (laughs) I mean, currencies do die, but that's a very different thing. So that's driven by interest rates, which are mean reverting, and interest rate differentials. So I think understanding the difference between these types of variables and ones which are mean reverting and ones which aren't is really important. And I think the mistake people make is to think that individual stocks are going to be mean reverting. So when there's a huge sell-off in a particular stock, people think, oh, I'll buy the dip. It's going to come back to where it was, which isn't necessarily the case. And that's one problem again, as you say, which is that people concentrate on one stock. And unfortunately, what happens with single stocks is that they do go to zero. Many times. Many times. It isn't infrequent either, because if you actually look at the history of stocks and look back over a long period of time, the vast majority of stocks even over their entire lifetime, underperformed the broad market. I looked at your video, it said 40% of all stocks. Over their entire lifetime. So this is literally from the day they're issued on the stock market in a flotation to the day they either merge with another company or go bankrupt. So that's why single stocks, even if you hold them for a long period of time, don't necessarily outperform the broad market. In fact, most of them don't. So that's another reason, I think, why a lot of the arguments about just holding forever don't work with single stocks unless you have a broad portfolio with, you know, at least, say, 30 stocks in it, where a single one failing won't necessarily scupper the whole portfolio. So in other words, you're approaching an index if you invest in many, many stocks. Easier to just buy an index fund, really. (laughs) Yeah, certainly in terms of the work involved. So a final bias let's talk about is confirmation bias. And I think this is a biggie. Now, this is something which everyone is prone to, which is that if you've got a view, you'll seek out information which confirms that view. Now, of course, I do this as well, and I have to be really careful not to. So that's why it's useful to listen to people who've got a view which is completely different from yours. So, you know, try and do that. Seek out information which will disprove your beliefs. 
because it may be right. And always anchor based on actual information, you know, real stats rather than opinion. But I think confirmation bias is probably the one which is most sinister. So how can you avoid it? Well, one good way to do that is to look at multiple valuation measures. People often focus on just one because it confirms what they think. It might be trailing price to earnings, which often looks expensive. So if you're bearish, you prefer trailing price to earnings to forward price to earnings, which tends to make stocks look cheaper. Or perhaps you look at things like yield curve inversion because you're convinced the world's ending. So you see the yield curve invert. Oh my God, we're going to see a bloodbath. I was right all along. That's right. <laughs> but having a handle on, on things which have worked in the past and multiple measures because they often tell you different things and just kind of dealing with that uncertainty is the best way to overcome this kind of confirmation bias. The other thing I found helpful, without wanting to shill your platform, is to join a community where people are going to like disagree with you and give their opinions when you post. We've said before that you know you need someone there who's going to call you an idiot. Now on Pentacraft, no one calls you an idiot, but they might post the kind of wry emoji when you post your portfolio. And you think, hmm, what does the emoji with the monocle mean? Am I wrong? <laughs> It's always good to be polite when you when you kind of point out something which may not be completely true. But, but look, I think having that accountability is exactly what keeps us kind of on the straight and narrow. And it's useful to have that. It's useful to have people that contradict your beliefs. And in active management, that's something I look for. You know, I like funds where there is that extra level of accountability, where someone can turn around and call you an idiot, because those are much more likely to do the right thing. And if they do have an idea which is just completely crazy, at least there'll be some filtering process. Or if they go down this kind of echo bubble route where they're just kind of amplifying each other's beliefs, there'll be at least some process that could snap them out of that. The other thing is it's really worth being honest with yourself. I mean, I've heard a lot of professional investors say, keep a diary. Like when you make an investment, write down why you did it, what you're thinking, how long you plan to hold it, and review it every so often. I know you did an interview with Jim O'Shaughnessy, a successful active manager, where he talked about the stories he's told himself and going back to his diaries and realising it was completely opposite. Yeah, so the 87 crash was when Jim actually remembered that he didn't suffer a big loss. But I think what he actually showed when he actually looked at his diary was that he had a huge put position. You know, that would have kind of saved his bacon if he'd have, if he'd have stuck with yeah, it. Yeah, he thought he was betting against the market, right? So he had a big hedge and then I think he sold it just before the big crash. A couple of days before, yeah. So, <laughs> but he didn't remember that. So in his mind, he was thinking, I called it, what a genius I am. <laughs> so our mind has this own its own kind of narrator, which tries to make us feel good. You know, when we look back at history, the narrator will be telling us that, yeah, it's not so bad. You did the right thing. Whereas in actual fact, if you look, look at those diaries, it'll be a very different story. And I, I think that's a great idea, keeping the journal. Also recording why you bought what you did, because you can then go back and say, well, has the story changed? You know, is the reason why I bought it still intact? Or am I just selling because the price is falling? Or because I read some criticism of the stock or the strategy in this magazine or online? The good thing is these podcasts are really going to hold our feet to the fire when we look back on them in years to come. <laughs> That's the trouble with virtue signaling, isn't it? When you say, oh, this isn't what you should do. But look, I think it's best to be upfront about the mistakes you make because being human, it's not a bad thing, right? It's not bad to, to kind of admit to these things. And people like it. Yeah, no one wants someone to come out and say, oh, I've made the right decision. Look how much money I've made. They want to hear you go, oh, I've made a bit of money, but boy, was it hard. <laughs> I had to overcome all these crap decisions I made. <laughs>
And I think we're all we've all got our kind of uh, war stories to tell, unless you've just started out in investing. We're all subject to these cognitive biases, and a great way to keep accountable is by joining our Pensioncraft community. If you want to learn more about that, just go to pensioncraft.com. So this week's dumb question of the week is submitted by one of our listeners, which is fantastic. And if you want to submit your own question, you can email us at mhr at pensioncraft.com. This week, Bastian sent in a question, which was around a fund he purchased at the start of the year, which was small cap growth. And he said he's not had a single day with positive returns since then, which is extraordinarily good timing, Bastian. <laughs> and his basic question is, should I weather the storm or cut my losses? Now, we can't give financial or investment advice specifically, but we can talk in general about what we think about this. So what do you think about small cap growth, Roman, and where we are? It's come down massively from where it was. So we've seen a huge sell-off in small cap growth. I mean, that's um, one of the factors which is sold off most this year. And in fact, if you look at Cathy Wood's ARC fund, which we keep coming back to... You keep coming back to it. I'm not obsessed by it. I am obsessed with it. <laughs> it's most correlated with small cap growth. So what are small cap growth stocks? Well, these are stocks which have a fairly small footprint in the market. They have, if you multiply the share price by the number of stocks, it's a very small number, relatively. And if you look at the earnings which they generate, those are increasing very rapidly. So these will be kind of startups which have maybe not been around for very long. Many of them won't be successful. Some of them are hugely successful. But if you look at growth in earnings, but also growth in share price, the attraction is that these will grow hugely in the future. They'll contain some lottery tickets that pay off and it'll outperform the broad market. That's the hope. Now, does that work? Well, there are certain things which have to be in place in order for it to work. The most important one is risk appetite. In order for people to buy into a story that, okay, we're loss making today, but in future we're going to have huge earnings and have a huge share price, to believe that, you've got to have a lot of appetite for risk in the market. Now, at the beginning of 2022, that's not what we're seeing, okay? No. We're seeing a commodity shock. We're seeing a shooting war on European soil. Interest rates are about to start going up, yeah. which is never good news for growth stocks. Massive phase shift from the central bank in the US, but also in the UK and elsewhere. And if funding costs increase, it's difficult, or at least more difficult, for these small companies to get funding. So is this a great environment for small cap growth? No. But people are kind of drawn in by a recency bias because we've just seen after the pandemic a massive rally, a kind of once in a lifetime rally for small cap growth. And I think some of them are the sexy stocks, aren't they? They're the, the ones that you think could be the next Apple, Amazon, Google. And it's easy to get swept up with that narrative. And I think that's one of the dangers that you overpay for growth. So again, I think valuations are useful here. If you look at the valuation for growth stocks in the S&P 500 versus value stocks, there's a huge premium for growth still baked into yeah. the S&P 500. It's come down, but it's still chunky, isn't it? Yeah. And is it mean reverting? Yes, it is. Uh, it's always the case that people will pay more for growth. So if you look at the valuation for growth versus value, of course, by definition, it's always higher, but the dispersion is still very big. So people are still optimistic. They still believe in this kind of growth story and are willing to pay too much for it relative to the broad market. So that's why I think it's not over. 
you know, we just saw another big fall in small cap growth just over the last week. So not great news for Bastian then, but we're not saying that he should necessarily sell. What he should really be thinking is, why did I buy this fund in the first place, I guess? And does that story still apply? Because as a long-term holder, you don't have to care about what's going to happen necessarily in the next year. Yeah, if you see those mark-to-market losses, which are just brutal, it is difficult to stick with your belief. But this is why the journal's useful, because if you wrote down in the journal, I think small cap growth will outperform in the long term, well, then maybe you'll focus less on recent losses. Maybe that's the way to approach it. I mean, he did say that he hasn't had a single day with positive return, which makes you think, oh, is he looking at it every day, which is probably not the way to, to go. Yeah, that's a really good point, which is you shouldn't be checking every day. If, you, if your view was a long term outperformance, then you, know, you wouldn't be checking every minute every day. And that's usually a red flag. If someone tells me that, you know, I'm looking at my portfolio every day and I see it's losing money, then immediately I know something's wrong. Because, you know, really, you should you should look at your portfolio. Once a month is probably fine if that. That's what I do, once a month. Yeah. And really, it, it doesn't matter if it's down because you've got to have faith that over the long term it's going to pay off. And if, if there is a crash, of course, you know, that's, that's a really good buying opportunity. And the other thing I think is it's hard to really assess one investment in isolation, usually I would like to look at it in the context of the broader portfolio. Like what role is that small cap growth fund playing? Is it hedged by other investments? Is it a small part of your portfolio? Is it a large part of your portfolio? All of those things will affect whether you want to stick with it or trim your position or sell it entirely. And always it's useful to have an understanding of where that investment falls in that kind of continuum. Is it part of your core portfolio, which is the kind of super tanker, which will effectively ensure your successful with investment long term? Or is it part of the fund portfolio where you're just learning, you're taking a little punt to, you know, stay engaged in markets and learn, in which case, even if it goes to zero, it's not going to affect your wealth long term. And those investments do have value because of their learning built into them. Whereas with a core portfolio, you'll never really learn anything from that. But seeing your investment lose daily over the space of, you know, three months, is going to teach you a lesson, either about your own ability to hold during during a market uh, fall or how willing you are to stick with your convictions. Because, you know, those stocks could turn around very quickly. So let's say that there's some kind of lifting of sanctions in Russia. The Fed actually holds off on its rate increases. You know, there are lots of things which could turn the situation around very quickly. Yeah, or one of the companies just invents some technology which is game-changing and really just flies from there forward. Yeah, and, and then it would really pay off. So, you know, I'd say stick with your convictions, but make it fact-based. You know, just do assess whether you could be wrong. Listen to other people and see whether small cap growth still holds up. If you look at the historic returns, you look at the kind of environments where it does suffer. And the other thing to say is we did that video on factor investing, and I think small cap growth would have to be one of the most crashy of all the combinations of factors. So going into it, you should kind of expect it's going to have these big drawdowns. Because cognitive biases are effectively what makes a portfolio something you can live with or not. And if you buy value stocks, for example, you could underperform for a decade. And you just have to understand that and have a human nature which can live with that. And like you say, small cap growth is very difficult to pallet because of this crashy nature. Another factor which is very crashy is momentum. 
you know, momentum does well over the long term, but it's very crashy. When when these regimes shift, it can turn around very quickly. So I think you've got to find something that, firstly, you can live with long term, but where you'd also sleep fairly well at night if you do have that portfolio. And small cap growth is a difficult one, I think, to stick with. So I think Bastian's got his work cut out for him. And I guess the final thing to say is that we've all gone into funds where they've quickly posted big losses and rued it. I mean, I know you invested in K-Web. Sorry to remind you about that, Roman. Still got K-Web. You still got K-Web. So you're, you're doing the same. Okay, tell me about this. <laughs> well, you know, for me, it is part of the fund portfolio. And, you know, it just keeps on falling. You know, I mean, my losses are now at a point where selling it would make a big difference. <laughs> uh, you're just going to hold it to zero, are you? Probably. I mean, it's looking that way. But, you know, I don't think it'll go to zero. I think eventually it will recover. So this is Chinese growth stocks, effectively, or internet stocks. Chinese internet stocks. Yeah. So this is the uh, one which really fell foul of the authorities. So it's got things like Alibaba in it. It's dominated by stocks like that. But but it's been absolutely terrible. And I bought pretty much at the peak. I really couldn't have timed it much worse. But, you know, I will stick with it. You know, I don't think it's going to go to zero because it is fairly diversified. If anything, you know, I should be buying more of it. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Remember to subscribe to hear our new episode every Wednesday. Thank you to everyone who's left a rating or review on their podcast platform so far. It really helps us grow the show. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Roman Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice. 